Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Motez Zahran, Egypt's ambassador to the United States. Ambassador Zahran will be talking with us about what to expect from U.S.-Egypt relations during the Biden administration, the stakes for Egypt in the Nile Dam talks, Egypt's economic resilience during the COVID-19 pandemic, Egypt's role in Israeli-Palestinian diplomacy and the political process in Libya, and much more. My conversation with Ambassador Motes Zahran is coming up after this break. There's no political will whatsoever on the part of Ethiopia to reach any kind of deal unless the international community comes together and supports the negotiation. The, the, the issue is, of course, used in Ethiopia in terms of uh, uh, its uh, uh, ability to galvanize the general populace in support of the national project. But uh, the, last, uh, the thing that is lost in, in translation here is that we've never been opposed to development in Ethiopia at all. So we need to have a much more engaged uh, uh, international community. We, know we need, we need to, to, to be able to convince Ethiopia that this, in fact, caters to the development needs of Ethiopia without any significant harm on the other, on the other two downstream states. That was Ambassador Motes Saran, who will be joining us shortly. First, let me talk briefly about one of the issues that he and I will be discussing. That is how Egypt has exceeded expectations in its management of the economic consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. On the economic front, Egypt is the only country in the Middle East and North Africa that is actually growing during the pandemic. By growing, I mean that the IMF says that Egypt's gross domestic product, GDP, is expected to increase by 2.8% in the Egyptian fiscal year that ends in June 2021. And that's despite the massive hit to the country's tourism sector and remittance incomes because of COVID. The report credits the government of President Abdul Fattah el-Sisi for undertaking what it calls proactive measures to address health and social needs to mitigate the impact of the virus. Egypt's death toll as of today, February 2nd, from COVID is 9,360. That's approximately 90 deaths per 1 million citizens in a population of close to 100 million. Now, while all COVID deaths are a terrible tragedy, this low ratio ranks Egypt 113th in the world of number of deaths per million. And in the Middle East, only Qatar, the UAE, Algeria, Yemen, and Syria have a lower ratio. And we need to discount Syria and Yemen because of the unreliability of the figures. Egypt's progress is both remarkable and fragile. And the IMF notes the risks given the uncertain external environment and the ongoing effects of the pandemic, which is not over. The IMF also says Egypt needs to stay on track to keep pace on key structural reforms, including support for the private sector and more transparency 
and state-owned enterprises. Egypt's five-year pre-pandemic economic turnaround under Sisi sometimes goes unnoticed, but it shouldn't. And it's paid off during the pandemic. Cairo has mostly adhered to the IMF guidelines and reform program, and it hasn't always been easy. Growth is up and unemployment is down, and the government has rolled back onerous energy subsidies, which raise fuel prices on Egyptians already facing hardships. And as, as we have reported here at Omonitor, continued crackdowns on political dissent. Egypt's economic progress under Sisi and management of the pandemic by sticking to IMF guidance has been a success and perhaps has lessons for Lebanon, Iraq, and Sudan, and other countries as they approach discussions about IMF assistance and reform. These programs often come with a heavy dose of austerity and subsidy reduction, which while necessary in the long run, in the short term can increase the economic toll on populations already reeling from weak economies and now the pandemic. Ambassador Zahran will provide further analysis and insight into Egypt's economic resilience during the pandemic and many other issues, including the urgency for Egypt of negotiations on the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or GERD, as it is known by its acronym. And we'll also be talking about U.S.-Egypt relations and much, much more. Motez Zaran is Egypt's ambassador to the United States. He arrived in Washington in September 2020 after serving as Assistant Foreign Minister and Chief of Cabinet at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs as Ambassador to Canada, as Deputy Assistant Foreign Minister, and as Advisor to the Minister of Foreign Affairs on the Middle East peace process, Palestine, Israel, and Egypt's relations with the United States. Ambassador Zaran also served previously in Washington at the embassy as a political counselor, congressional affairs officer, and chargé d'affaires. My conversation with Ambassador Motez Zaran begins now. Ambassador Zahran, welcome to On the Middle East. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Let's get right into it. The U.S.-Egypt relationship can't be understated. It's an amazingly successful strategic partnership for now four decades and counting. There are reports that there might be some anxiety in Cairo, given that Presidents Trump and LCC enjoyed such a good working relationship and that the new administration and the Democratic Congress might give more attention to issues in the bilateral relationships, such as human rights and political prisoners and so forth, more thorny issues. Given this backdrop, what are your expectations and what are your priorities for the U.S.-Egypt relationship during the Biden administration? Well, absolutely, and thank you for for the question. Uh, uh, you see, one of the the unique features of U.S.-Egypt uh, relationship is that it transcends local politics uh, here and there, and it's also here in the U.S. It's of a bipartisan nature. So traditionally, both uh, Democrats and and Republicans have supported and and continue to support the strategic p- partnership with the U.S. Uh, w- with Egypt and the U.S., both of them together. So this is a mutu- mutual, uh, mutually reinforcing, has always been longstanding and, and enduring. 
there's mutual interests uh, at the core of this relationship, but there's also common uh, objectives. And when we say strategic, it is military to military, it's intelligence sharing, it is security coordination. And uh, when it comes to the general outlook uh, throughout the region, there's a lot in, in common in terms of Egypt being uh, a cornerstone of, of peace and security and stability. So yes, we are uh, cognizant that each administration has its uh, specific set of priorities and inclinations, but uh, these preferences rarely overshadow the overarching strategic interests that have united both countries for, for decades. And let me say here and, and use the opportunity to mention that the uh, president of Egypt has been the very first Arab leader to congratulate uh, uh, President Biden uh, back in November when election results were out. And uh, we definitely look forward to engaging with the new administration. So there are a number of host, uh, a host of issues that, have, uh, that will be on the table, of course. And uh, when we look uh, at what is needed here, it is basically anchored in, in, in a partnership that is reliable to both sides that uh, we are able to extract from this partnership the, the common interests and, uh, and, and objectives, uh, basically in a region that is in, in complete turmoil. Uh, when it comes to issues of, of human rights and, and freedoms in general, let me just say that uh, these are issues that we all uh, agree to in, their, uh, in the objective of attaining a much more uh, prosperous uh, uh, circumstances for people to be able uh, to exercise their rights. Uh, in Egypt, uh, we have enacted a number of uh, progressive legislations. We've been able to advance on a number of fronts, whether it is religious freedom, whether it is the rights and empowerment of women, whether it is uh, people uh, with uh, special needs. All this is anchored in the constitution itself and the practice that is uh, on the ground is only indicative to the general trajectory towards advancement. So I think this is something that uh, when we start having our conversations and our strategic dialogues, uh, the new administration will be cognizant of uh, and will uh, definitely uh, act accordingly in terms of having uh, uh, this relationship more uh, on, on, on more solid grounds. Let's get into one of the key issues for Egypt that will be part of that conversation, and that's the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Now, Secretary of State Blinken warned in his confirmation hearing uh, last week that talks between Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan on the, on the dam could, he said, boil over. And he promised a very assertive American diplomacy in the region to, to help navigate this, this crisis. Now, this is a huge issue for Egypt. You depend on the Nile for, I think, 90% of your water. Last year, the U.S. and the World Bank helped facilitate an arrangement that we all thought was going to be a, a framework for management of water allocation for the dam, but Ethiopia never showed up to sign the paper. Mm -hmm. Help our listeners understand the stakes in the Nile Dam talks for Egypt, where they stand now, and what you would consider the makings of a good deal in the management of the dam. Well, well uh, thank you again for the question. I think the uh, statement of uh, Secretary Lincoln was indeed appreciated because of the fact that the U.S. has uh, been very involved uh, in, in terms of trying to reach a, a, a settlement of 
what is looming as a crisis. The GERD has the potential impact of disrupting livelihoods uh, for over 150 million Egyptians and Sudanese citizens. And it would create an avalanche of socioeconomic turbulence. Now, this is an example we just had uh, yesterday, uh, uh, a virtual meeting with staffers on the Hill, and it was widely attended. And, and this is one of the points that has been made. For, for every uh, one billion cubic meter that is lost to uh, unilateral operation of the dam, Egypt would lose 290,000 incomes 130,000 hectares of cultivated land, 430 million of lost agricultural production, and 150 million increase in food imports. So this also is illustrative of your point that is, it is uh, a matter of, uh, of an existential nature for Egypt and not just a development. But despite the, the diligent and, and relentless efforts by Egypt for years, uh, that amount to uh, at least a, a decade uh, to seek a win-win uh, solution that fulfills Ethiopia's development goals, which is one that we subscribe to. Ethiopia has been consistently uh, intransigent uh, when, when it came to reaching a, uh, an agreement. So Egypt negotiated for an entire decade, but negotiations were, uh, were not, were stopped, have stalled at different uh, occasions and, and cannot remain to be perpetual or never ending. So the GERD is being constructed without having completed the requisite studies on hydrological and environmental impacts of the dam and the necessary guarantees to ensure its uh, structural safety uh, and, and thereby uh, threatening the, the lives of both Egyptian and Sudanese, Sudanese people. So for Egypt, in short, it is existential. For Ethiopia, it is a, a de uh, developmental. And uh, as such, unilateralism uh, is, is not an, an option. A legally binding agreement with dispute resolution mechanisms have, has to be reached. And we certainly encourage the new uh, administration to be fully engaged in terms of shepherding uh, a, a process again uh, uh, with the three riparian states. Ambassador, let's just stay on this uh, for a minute, because uh, in Ethiopia, the, the dam is a huge nationalist issue, and it could change the course of, of development for Ethiopia and make them an electricity energy exporter in the region. As I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're not challenging Ethiopian sovereignty of the dam in your position. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely, it's uh, it's uh, a, so a sovereign decision to uh, move on the construction and the operation of the dam. But uh, uh, again, it has to be done in in complete coherence with international law, with uh, uh, undertakings that would uh, secure and guarantee the non-significant harm on downstream states. So it's uh, it's uh, you know th these are. Uh, issues that affect uh, uh, millions uh, of people in both uh, Sudan and Egypt. So the, the, the need for the Ethiopians to be engaged in constructive dialogue and, and negotiations cannot be overemphasized. And you mentioned and that the U.S. and the World Bank had tried to work out a framework 
so the U.S. has been active. In fact, uh, that intervention began at the request of, of President al-Sisi to President Trump. And the, the key facilitator from the U.S. side was the Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin. So this was a high-level uh, engagement. And uh, that stalled back in February of last year. There have also been other mediation efforts to try to break the deadlock. In addition to the U.S. and the bank, there's been South Africa, the African Union. Um, what more can be done by the U.S. and what's and, and other perhaps uh, mediators? And what's the sticking point at this time? Well, well, uh, well absolutely. Let me just uh, say this. The past efforts were commendable. Uh, we've uh, reached a point in Washington here where uh, a fair and balanced document was put on the table. It was actually due to the efforts of both the United States and the World Bank who have been present. And for long, the Ethiopians have uh, uh, been adamant in uh, their position of not uh, accepting to have third parties participate in the negotiations. But we've been able to do so with the past administration. So that uh, effort has been, uh, unfortunately, the whole process has been uh, aborted by Ethiopia and has been snubbed altogether. And we've, uh, we've been facing claims by Ethiopia that uh, we are circumventing the, uh, the, the concept of African solutions to African problems. And uh, we've, uh, we've uh, thought that the argument was entirely weak and not the case. And we've uh, been able to uh, uh, start a process under the leadership of South Africa as the president of the AU. But uh, th th these negotiations have stalled. So what is uh, sticking here is, simple, uh, is a simple thing. There's no political will uh, whatsoever on the part of Ethiopia to reach any kind of deal unless the international community comes together and supports the negotiation. The, the, the issue is, of course, used in Ethiopia in terms of uh, uh, its uh, uh, ability to galvanize the general populace in support of a national project. But uh, the, last, uh, uh, the thing that is lost in, in translation here is that we've never been opposed to development in Ethiopia at all. So we need to have a much more engaged uh, uh, international community. We need, we need, we need to, to, to be able to convince Ethiopia that this, in fact, caters to the development needs of Ethiopia without any significant harm on the other, on the other two downstream states. Ambassador, we now, on, on top of the difficulties of, of these negotiations, we have the unrest in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. Yes. Since, since this conflict started in November, we have of just about 60,000 more refugees. And this is increasing border tensions with Sudan, which is a country of 44 million people. It already has a million refugees and nearly 2 million internally displaced people. And it's undergoing its own kind of sensitive and serious transition since uh, the former dictator and war criminal Omar al-Bashir was overthrown in, in 2019. Tell us a little about Egypt's concerns about what's happening in Tigray, how it could impact Sudan and the region, and, and put it in the context of your own evolving relationship with Sudan, which has gotten a lot better since uh, Bashir left power. 
Well, absolutely. Uh, the uh, the issue with the Tigray is an internal issue in Ethiopia, and I would uh, probably refrain on commenting on the dynamics of what's happening there. But uh, in terms of its ramifications and its consequences on Sudan itself and what we've seen in terms of uh, uh, skirmishes and, and, and the military involvement between both uh, sides is, is in fact uh, saddening and disheartening. We need to see much more focus and we, we need to see a, a much more political kind of leadership that is exhibited in terms of, of tackling the basic and main source of threat uh, that is posed to uh, on us all, which is the livelihood of the Sudanese and the livelihood of the Egyptians as a result of the continued construction and unilateral action on, on the damage. So this is a, a, a general comment. But on Sudan in general, and since Sudan revolution, let me say that Egypt has been a strong supportive partner to Sudan. And Egypt uh, here does not differentiate between Sudanese factions, whether civilian or, or military components. Both are partners in a transitional period that uh, we need to see uh, it succeed. And in show of uh, Egypt's solidarity, we just, uh, in last August, we had a high-level uh, visit from Egypt by the Prime Minister of Egypt to Sudan. And we continue to engage with Sudan at different levels where both Egypt and Sudan have jointly agreed on a, on a wide uh, spectrum of cooperation in several fields, uh, infrastructure projects, electricity, railways, and etc. We have provided also substantial humanitarian assistance, uh, providing airlifts to support Sudan during flooding, and also supplying uh, PPE for uh, COVID assistance. So uh, we look forward for a stronger engagement with the U.S. on Sudan as well in terms of uh, trilateral cooperation through USAID, AID, and, and the Egyptian Agency for Partnership for Development, as we support Sudan's uh, 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 trajectory towards uh, you know, taking on the different challenges that it faces uh, in, in solidifying and, and cementing the new trajectory they're on. So uh, uh, it is unfortunate that we see this kind of confrontation on the borders with Ethiopia. We're hopeful that this will come to an end. And, uh, and for us to be able to focus more on uh, what is uh, at stake uh, in terms of the real threat to livelihoods in, in, in Sudan and Egypt. Ambassador, in my introductory comments to the podcast today, I talked about how Egypt's economy so far in this pandemic has exceeded expectations and the Egyptian economy may actually grow during the COVID crisis. I think this, it's the only country in the MENA region where that might happen. Now with the, the full caveat of, of course that the pandemic and uh, the impact of the pandemic is a work in progress and will continue to take its, its terrible toll on Egypt, the region and, and the world. Uh, tell us how in that, these very difficult times, how Egypt has managed the economy and how to even have growth when most economies are contracting and how that may be related to the economic reforms that were initiated by President el-Sisi about five years ago. Well, absolutely. The resilience in the economy has been a product of these reforms. And despite the global uh, economic slowdown and setbacks uh, that immediately followed the pandemic, the economy has, has uh, remained uh, extremely resilient. And uh, 
and uh, as we've uh, weathered uh, COVID uh, aftershocks as well. But Egypt has also continued to maintain, and this is the good news and the, and the success story in Egypt. And it's very promising that uh, throughout the pandemic, we've been able to reach a growth rate that is not only positive, but, is, but was registered at a rate of 3.6%. And that in itself is indicative of how the economy has been resilient thanks to the reforms that, that we've been implementing. So the only country in the region actually, and these are the numbers out there, not our own assessments or our uh, own self uh, kind of, uh, of, uh, of uh, how can I say, uh, ability to, to project, but, uh, but it's the only country in the region to sustain that kind of positive growth rate. So the economy in Egypt uh, is uh, transforming, has been transforming, and continues to be uh, transforming into one of the most dynamic emerging economies, uh, as you've uh, mentioned, and thanks to these, uh, not only reforms, but unprecedented in terms of the intensity, in terms of the, uh, the, um, the also, let me say, intrusive nature. They, they, they were intrusive in their nature, and they've been able to... Uh, to make their economy resilient. Those reforms were basically monetary and fiscal, but also structural. And, um, and we're nothing less than a full overall of, of Egypt's uh, economic uh, apparatus. So these advanced uh, reforms have uh, ensured the ma macroeconomic gains that have led to sustainable and inclusive and, and also uh, uh, with the help of the private uh, sector growth as well, being the main driver of, uh, of development and the economy uh, uh, being uh, front and center and center stage, uh, which we were able to also devise plans uh, for with the World Bank and the IMF. So the business environment has uh, been uh, also un uh, undertaking uh, pioneer reforms. So we've uh, carried out uh, in the government some of the most uh, in, in, in intensive and intrusive, as I said in the very beginning, making a, a business climate more uh, improved and the creation of new jobs and attraction of new investments and to ensure rigorous competitiveness of, uh, in, the, in the economy itself. The energy sector here stands out and uh, it is uh, particularly doing extremely well, uh, given, of course, the, the offshore gas field discoveries that have been characterized as the largest in the Mediterranean, but we've also not been only depending on traditional sources of energy, but we're on the course of also expanding in our renewables. And uh, we've, um, uh, we've, we're constructing one of the, the world's largest solar power plants in Southern uh, or Upper Egypt uh, in Bendan uh, as one. And this is uh, a trajectory that we're on given the strategy that we've been implementing on integrated uh, sources of, uh, of energy, both uh, uh, renewables and, and uh, traditional. So in, in, in 10 years, I think we'll be at uh, a level of 50-50 in terms of, of renewables and traditional, uh, uh, traditional sources, uh, resources for energy. Ambassador, do you think in terms of Egypt's adhering to 
IMF guidance in terms of its uh, commitment to undertaking uh, some difficult policies, as you mentioned, some very intrusive policies, for instance, the end, ending of the or reducing of the fuel subsidy uh, and uh, uh, during times when the Egyptian workers and people were, were struggling, these were tough choices. And uh, in the short term, uh, there were dislocations and people were affected. And when you look around the region, you see a number of other countries beginning or contemplating uh, major reform discussions and assistance discussions with the IMF, for example, uh, Sudan, which we talked about, Lebanon, Iraq, without getting into the specifics of other countries' cases, because they're all different. Tell us a little about how Egypt was able to manage the dislocations of some very tough policies that had to be undertaken over these, these past five or six years. Well, well, great question. You know, the, uh, well, Egypt has been in stagnation for at least 10 or 15 out of the, uh, out of, uh, the last 30 years or more. And uh, given the fact that we have had in the past reform policies that have been uh, implemented, uh, they've, you know, the, the dividends or the benefits have never trickled down to the general public. But when you look at today's uh, reforms that have happened and you look at the mega projects and the small and medium enterprises that have been booming in Egypt lately, you, you will only realize that the, these tough decisions, these hard decisions have been uh, taken at, a, at, of course, at a risk. But that risk was mitigated by the fact that the general topics have been seeing some of these benefits uh, trickling down. When you look at the mega projects and you look at the expansion in land uh, uh, agriculture, and, uh, and when you look at the housing projects, when you look at the uh, healthcare system that is being completely revamped, people have realized that these uh, reforms have been essential for their livelihood and they make them uh, better uh, in terms of uh, 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 of their citizenship as well. So because of that conviction, uh, we have not seen a backlash. And, uh, and thank God people come, have come to realize that these are essential reforms that are needed for the country to move ahead within our 2030 vision. But also when you look at the, these mega projects, you'll find a country with the leadership of the president that has uh, in fact, uh, embraced a vision for the future, a vision probably not for my generation or not maybe for my kids' generation. But you'll find an Egypt that is completely transforming. If you look at the new uh, cities that are, being, that are being built, you will find that not only administrative capital that is undergoing construction, but you'll find 14 new cities that are being built in parallel in tandem. And this in Egypt is revolutionary. Uh, and when you speak about revolutionary, you will find a revolutionary thinking in, in, in other fields as well, whether education, whether in the religious uh, uh, freedoms and tolerance uh, sphere, you will find this re revolutionary kind of, uh, of, uh, 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 of thinking uh, completely shared by, by the people and the willingness to overcome the obstacles of a year, a dark year that we've uh, managed to uh, to endure during the the, the, uh, the rule of the Muslim Brotherhood and all the darknesses that uh, were looming 
And we're not only looming, but we'll actually live. You'll find the people, the general people, supportive of new, the new Egypt and the trajectory it's on. I'd like to cover a few of the uh, key issues you and the United States will be dealing with in, in the region. Um, let's start with Libya. Uh, there are delegates of the government of national accord and the Libyan national army, which uh, your country supports. This week are voting as part of a renewed push to reach a political solution after six years of civil war. Uh, the country's Warring parties, they signed the ceasefire in October last year and agreed to hold elections. Um, where do you stand now on Libya, your support for the LNA and uh, the political process as it's evolving? Well, uh, absolutely. Egypt uh, has played a, a critical role in achieving the ceasefire in Libya. Uh, and it continues to hold uh, between the two Libyan parties. So it's uh, not Egypt siding with uh, necessarily with any of the parties. Uh, we've been able to host rounds of negotiations between both sides in uh, Cairo and Baghdad uh, and, and other uh, places in Egypt, uh, military levels, political, economic, and legal. So uh, Egypt is, is a main supporter of, uh, of the UN uh, support mission in Libya. And uh, uh, it realizes that there is absolutely no military solution for the internal Libyan uh, struggle. So the red line that we've declared and the president has declared was actually a call for peace and that call for peace has led to the ceasefire. So this gives you uh, um, uh, an idea on where we stand. Um, we also here co-chair with the United States, the Economic Working Group for which coordinates issues related to economic and structural reform uh, of the Libyan economy. And currently, the, the political committee is holding talks uh, in Geneva to address the issues that you've uh, mentioned, and mainly the membership of, of the presidential uh, council. So this should be the choice of, of the Libyan people, and Egypt will support that choice and respect and uh, uh, stand behind the outcome chosen by the Libyans themselves. So Egypt here has, has open channels with, uh, with both, with both uh, uh, in East and West. And lately in the West, we've uh, sent a high-level uh, delegation uh, to visit the West. And, and, and during the, that visit, the leadership of the West was extremely uh, uh, forthcoming and, and, and highly appreciative and has laid down a number of, uh, of uh, requests for a much more uh, involvement between Egypt and the West, and all of these requests are, are studied back home. And we think that uh, the only way through is to continue supporting the uh, efforts uh, to reach a political settlement and to support the Libyans. And we're also here uh, uh, extremely disturbed and concerned by external involvement in Libya. And uh, uh, those who have probably uh, gained some ground in Libya need to move out of Libya because their presence has only exacerbated the situation and their presence also came to the detriment of not only the plight of the Libyan people, but also to the efforts exerted by the international community. So we need to, to see them uh, move out of Libya to uh, end their support to radical groups that are essentially terrorist groups that operate in Libya. And we need to see a much more 
uh, a much more uh, productive and, 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 and conducive atmosphere prevailing in Libya for the Libyans themselves to succeed in what they're trying to do. When you're referring to these uh, external powers uh, intervening to the detriment of the process, are you referring to Turkey? Absolutely. And your view is they should get out of uh, Libya completely, or their, they their presence in Libya has has only uh, been uh, in support of radical groups. Uh, they have uh, been also playing a, an extremely destructive role in terms of transferring foreign uh, fighters from Syria into Libya, and that is documented. And uh, it is not an allegation; it is uh, mere facts. And the intention, if the intention is to transform uh, Libya into another Syria, then uh, that will be uh, chaotic. It, it, it will be uh, another, uh, uh, you know, disaster uh, on our uh, western borders that uh, we need to prevent. Uh, the Libyan crisis that has been, or the crisis that has been created in Libya and that continues to to uh, linger. Uh, is uh, our number one national security threat. So it is basically in the interest of Egypt to have an Egypt, uh, 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 Libya that regains its uh, control over the whole of its territory, a uh, Libya that has a political leadership that is recognized uh, in Libya, a uh, Libya that is able to act responsibly with its resources uh, from oil revenues, and a Libya uh, that has a, an army that is able to keep the country together and to fight uh, terrorists and terror spots. And those who uh, fuel uh, the tension in Libya need to desist from what they're doing, and they need to come uh, uh, to uh, their senses in terms of supporting what is or what should be uh, the right thing to do in terms of righteousness, in terms of goodness, and in terms of also uh, abandoning policies of hegemony and dominance and reviving uh, reviving uh, history that uh, has no place to Egypt has joined Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain in burying the hatchet with Qatar last month at the GCC summit. Uh, I assume you are encouraged by the diplomatic and economic progress so far. And what, how do you see the relationship uh, evolving with Qatar given this progress, or do you see any um, sticking points still? Uh, well, the agreement that we've all uh, reached and signed on to uh, in, in Saudi Arabia is one that uh, uh, captures the general guidelines of what uh, should prevail in terms of relationships, sane relationships that should exist and, and, and prevail between between the, the countries involved. Uh, so basically an agreement that is, uh, uh, that indicates to uh, a willingness to overcome all the problems. Uh, it's a political statement in its nature. And uh, what is yet to be seen is to uh, see the, uh, the fruits uh, and, and us being able to bear the fruits. So uh, this will be uh, it's a positive uh, development. Uh, nevertheless, it needs to be monitored in terms of its implementation and in terms of seeing reversal of policies uh, on the part of Qatar in the past. 
and that being exhibited uh, concretely uh, in its relationship with the, uh, our brethren in the Gulf and with us in Egypt. Egypt's relationship with Iraq has been growing. There are now regular meetings, including to deepen economic ties. Are you encouraged by the leadership and reform efforts of Iraqi Prime Minister Al-Qadami? And how do you see Egypt-Iraq uh, relations developing? Well, they're developing in a, in a extremely positive way and very promising as well. Iraq, for us, is, is like Sudan. Uh, both of them, and these are, this is the joint headline, both of them need to succeed. Uh, Iraq should be able to be empowered, should be able to uh, enable to, to confront the challenges of, of terror and radical groups that operate there that, that are supported by other regional uh, uh, powers. Uh, and, uh, and the Iraqi uh, government should, uh, should be not only supported by Egypt and Jordan, because we have this trilateral mechanism and basically the general thrust here is to uh, enable the, uh, the Iraqi government uh, in, in a way that uh, makes uh, it more uh, in control and makes their uh, general trajectory uh, in politically in the right direction, in a direction that caters to the prosperity of the people of Iraq, but also in terms of its uh, regional engagements with other regional in terms of other regional uh, powers. So Iraq needs to succeed, and we're uh, behind uh, every effort that uh, creates the uh, environment that is conducive for success. Finally, um, Ambassador, it's always been the case that Egypt has been instrumental in Israeli-Palestinian and Israeli-Arab peace efforts. What are the prospects for a push this year? And if you could put it in the context of a few uh, recent developments. One, do you see uh, the Abraham Accords as facilitating this process? And another key piece, which I know uh, your, your country is deeply involved in, is whether President Abbas can first pull off elections because that involves some type of arrangement with Hamas. And I know your diplomats have tried to work to help further that reconciliation in advance of elections. Uh, coming up in May? Well, uh, Egypt was uh, among the very first uh, uh, nations to uh, welcome the normalization agreements between Israel and uh, a number of Arab states. And uh, it has been at the forefront, and it's only natural uh, because Egypt has simply been the trailblazer in the past and has been the seed planter and has uh, weathered the backlash and has continued in its conviction. So whenever peace openings happen, it is always Egypt at the forefront that uh, welcomes these efforts. But uh, here, the Palestinian issue, of course, and you've alluded to that, remains to be the, 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 center, or the central core issue in, in the Middle East. And uh, the conflict is the central and the core conflict. And if we are um, unable to uh, resolve the conflict, it is... Uh, only natural, and as we've seen uh, in the past, uh, other conflicts have erupted. And uh, resolving and, and gearing all efforts towards resolving the Palestinian-Israeli conflict would only lead to easing of other conflicts and for uh, the, their rationale to be simply extinguished. So 
uh, Egypt will continue to exert uh, these efforts and uh, uh, in order to find a solution based on the two-state solution, which is the only viable uh, solution. It is growing, yes. And this is why time is of the essence. And we need to uh, be able to save uh, what we're able to save uh, in terms of, 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 uh, of a two-state solution. And uh, for that purpose, Egypt has uh, uh, hosted just lately the the uh, uh, the Munich group, which is Egypt, Jordan, and, and France, and and Germany. And the basic uh, uh, drive here is to lay down the uh, parameters of um, our requirements for re-engagement on, on, on in, peace, uh, in peace talks. Uh, we also recognize here that there are elections that will uh, happen in Israel, and there are elections that, uh, that are also scheduled in, 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 uh, in Palestine. So um, I think it is important to keep supporting the authority, President Abbas, and encouraging him to continue on, on that path to hold these elections when uh, they're scheduled. When it comes to Egypt uh, uh, and the role it plays, it also plays an, an extremely important role in terms of Palestinian uh, reconciliation. And uh, that role has uh, uh, been exerted in the past, and, uh, and we've been able to, at different intervals, to, uh, to bring the factions uh, together to understand this, but developments on the ground have always come in the way and uh, that effort that Egypt um, has been exerting needs to continue uh, on that front for the elections also to be able to, to happen. Uh, but we also play another role when it comes to de-escalation, de-escalation in general, whenever escalation happens in Gaza. And I think we've been very successful in the past in terms of reaching calm for, uh, uh, for any development not to overshadow the the basic goal that we have, which is uh, one uh, that needs to see peace reign uh, throughout the region. Ambassador Zahran, you have been generous with your time today. I've really enjoyed and learned from our conversation. Thank you for joining us on, on the Middle East. Well, well, thank you very much. And I'm glad to be with you and, and, and look forward to our future uh, engagement. We will be right back after this break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor.
That was an outstanding conversation with Ambassador Motes Saran, who gave us a sense of the stakes in the Nile Dam talks that, if not managed properly, the lives of 150 million Egyptians and Sudanese could be disrupted, he said, and could lead to what he called socioeconomic turbulence. And that the reason the talks are stalled is because Ethiopia has shown no political will whatsoever, Zahran said, to get a deal done. And therefore, he is hopeful that the U.S. can help break the deadlock. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. I want to thank our production team of Phil Calabro of O Monitor and Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.